We'd love to see that in our city at this time, that God would move in such a powerful and beautiful way that we would see our city redeemed and returned to Jesus. And for Jonah, he had the front row seats. He got to be there like right at the front, at the forefront of what God was doing. He got to preach the message. He got to see it with his own eyes. He was there right at the front. I was thinking probably for us, the greatest evangelist of our generation is Billy Graham. He passed away, I think it was last year, he was in his early 90s. But if you read the stats on him, they reckon over 2 billion people on earth would have heard Billy Graham speak, either live or through some type of media, which is insane. If you've kind of shared the gospel with about one third of the world's population, it's good to go home, like you're done, your job is done after that. But I was reading about some of uh, Billy Graham's stats or just the facts about his life. And in 1973, he preached to the biggest crowd that he would ever share with. It was in this Yoido Plaza in Seoul in South Korea. Korea, and he spoke to a crowd of 1.1 million people. So I want to show you a picture because some of you don't believe me, of course. This is a picture. 1.1 million people gathered together to hear Billy Graham preach. And I mean, maybe even more amazingly than that is that, how insane is that? Imagine this. This is, I don't know, there's maybe 80 people in the room today standing in front of you. Imagine standing in front of that sea of people to speak about Jesus. And after this meeting, after this crusade, 75,000 people filled in a card to say, we began following Jesus today. We repented of our sin and put our faith in Jesus today. We've begun the journey of being a disciple today. I thought of Billy Graham going home after that day. I don't know where he went or what he did, but I was thinking probably if it was me, I'd be on like one of two ends. Either get your friends together, let's go out, have some champagne and celebrate what God has done. Or I want to go home and be alone in my room and just get down on my hands and knees before God and weep and praise him for the powerful things that he has done on this day. And I just thought of myself, like that's probably what I would feel. I'm sure that's what you would feel if you saw Jesus do this incredible thing. But what about Jonah? After what he has just witnessed and experienced, how does he respond to God and what God has done? 120,000 responding to God. More than that, an entire city responding to God. A 100% response rate, it seems, from the book, responding to the message that God gives him to preach. I would be over the moon. This is a unique miracle in the history of the world. But let's look this morning and see how Jonah responds. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Jonah isn't really excited about this, which kind of blows my mind, and instead he throws a tantrum. Some of the other translations say that Jonah gets furious at what God has just done. And this should be absurd to us. This should be crazy because this doesn't make sense. This prophet, this preacher of God getting up and seeing an incredible 100% hit rate and still he's angry and he's not happy. So why is Jonah mad? Jonah 4 verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And Jonah is really cross with God. I don't know if you want to admit this morning if you've ever been cross with God about something, but he's cross. And he preaches back to God. He quotes out of Exodus 34, this exchange between God and Moses, where God reveals his character and his heart and his ways to Moses. He says, I am the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. And on and on and on he goes. And Jonah says this to God, God, I knew who you were. 
When I was in Israel, I knew what was going to happen when we came to the city. I knew that if I preached this message, and if these people repented, you'd show them grace, and your abounding love, and your patience, and your mercy. I knew this was going to happen, God. And here we see Jonah just loses it. He's like walking around, he's pacing, he's got his arms crossed, he's furious, he's shouting at God, he's like kind of praying, but he's angry too. He's saying, who does God think he is to do this? You know, these are the enemies of Israel, these are the worst people in the world, these are evil people, does God not know who they are? Who does he think he is, and how does he think he can do this? This is kind of Jonah's little internal dialogue that is going on. And probably all of us have judged Jonah as we've gone through this book. Like, this book is meant to mess with us, as I said. As Damien Lindica said about Jonah chapter 1, Jonah's a bit of a loser. Sorry, Damien, I just want to flame you there for a sec. But probably for all of us, we're like this as well, you know? We have these moments where actually we don't get our way and we get cross. We want God's abounding love and grace and mercy and patience for us and the people we love, you know, our people, but for the people who are not our people, the them, We want judgment, and we want swift justice, and we want punishment, and we don't want them to be saved or forgiven. We want them to pay for what they've done. It's kind of the opposite of grace, you know? We don't want to have to earn anything, but we want them to pay for the things that they've done. We don't want them to be saved or forgiven. And just probably like in a small way, I've seen how real this is inside of me, and I would assume and believe this is the same inside of you too. Because it's the Christmas season, you know? The most wonderful time of the year. It's... A beautiful singing voice. And Shell and I have been doing just a little bit of Christmas shopping, trying to prepare. We went to Gateway the other day with our lists and we were buying things. And this is where my justice and judgment flares up in the greatest of ways. And I know Yasmin has felt the same, but I've sometimes been in a shopping center probably 10 times and nudged Shell and said, if I ran the center, things would run differently. And I just think about how I would love to find people who are in the middle of the walkway texting on their phones, just stopped, or how people, a whole group of people, is just blocking the walkway as they walk along, put them in mall jail. And if there was anyone else who was doing their own thing or getting in my way or slowing me down, I'd want them to be punished, you know, some kind of fine system or whatever it is. And I've even thought about maybe slow lanes and fast lanes and medium lanes in the walkways just so that things could run well so that I can get my job done, you know. And this is Christmas. I'm talking about Christmas shopping, and I want to bring down justice and judgment on people in the mall. Imagine what I would have done with Nineveh, and I know some of you are the same too. Because remember, these Ninevites are actually really bad guys. These are not good guys. And in part one of the series, we looked at the Assyrians and how their kings treated their enemies and how they uh, treated the nations that they vanquished and the paintings they did of these corpses lying on fields. And I don't want to go through that again. It's not really a feel-good kind of Christmas moment. But I did read this this week about this cruel and violent nation. King Ashurbanipal, one of the kings of Assyria, describes how he treated one of the kings that he defeated of another nation. And he says, I pierced his chin with my keen hand dagger. Through his jaw, I passed a rope. I put a dog chain upon him and made him occupy a kennel. That's how he treated the leader of this other nation that they defeated. That's the kind of people these Ninevites and Assyrians were. And we read that and we can understand Jonah's anger. We can understand how Jonah wants them to be judged. And Jonah knows, even for wicked people like King Ashurbanipal, If he repents and puts his faith in God, God will forgive him. God will show him grace and love. And you can kind of insert whichever figure you've got in your mind there. We want mercy and justice and grace and patience from God for ourselves and for the people we love. But we want judgment and justice for those that we don't think deserve it. 
And Jonah is angry, and he prays, and he speaks to God, and he says this. Jonah 4, verse 3 to 5. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah doesn't reply. I mean, that's quite a big question. You know, God is speaking to him and says, do you think your anger is just, Jonah? He just goes, I'm going to ignore that one, God. I'm just going to keep going. And verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and he sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. And Jonah isn't just angry at God. He's actually enraged. He's suicidal. He's saying to himself, I do not want to have to live in a world like this where the Ninevites will be forgiven and where they will not be judged for the things that they've done. I would rather, God, you take me now. Like Christian suicide. Would you take me now, God? Because I don't want to have to live in this world anymore. And God's so amazing. You know, I don't know how you would respond to one of your friends or Jonah if you were the one that he was speaking to. But God almost takes on this wonderful counselor position. It's one of the things that Isaiah says about him in his book, that God is a wonderful counselor. And God is this counselor, therapist, psychiatrist, speaks to Jonah, and he says, Jonah, is it good for you to burn with this anger? Trying to get below the surface. Jonah, what's going on with you? But we get no reply from Jonah. Jonah doesn't want to go there. Jonah doesn't want to discuss this at all. And I don't know how you found this, but I know for me, in moments of anger and rage where I am justice incarnate, where someone has wronged me and I want things to be made right, it's the easiest time in the world for me to hear God speak. It's like, I know this is wrong and I want to deal with them. And I'm normally speaking to God and I'm like, Lord, you've got to do something. You've got to sort them out. And the still small voice of God comes, just that spirit nudging on me, just letting me know clarity this clarifying question or clarifying thought that helps me to know right from wrong what I need to do. And if I am mature enough in that moment to admit my wrong, to admit that maybe I'm not operating as a grace person like I should, but actually I'm operating as like a vengeance judgment kind of person, then I'll say, God, I'm sorry, I was just proud. And I'll go and do the bigger person kind of thing and do what God has called me to do. But often for me, it takes me a little bit of time to actually process that and get through it before I'm actually able to go out and do but I know God wants me to do. But Jonah doesn't answer God. Jonah hears those words, he hears it, and he ignores it, and he keeps going and doing what he wants to do. But think about this for a second. Why does Jonah not just go home after this? He's preached his message, he's done what God wanted him to do, he, he fought God at the beginning, and he ran in the other direction, but he's gone to Nineveh, he's preached the message, he's off the hook, he's free, he can go back to Israel, he can go back home, he doesn't have to carry on staying here in Nineveh. Why do you think he stays rather than going home? He stays because Jonah wants to see what God is going to do. You know, the message he preached to the Ninevites was yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And they've had this radical repentance. There's been this revival. People have said, okay, God, we're going to serve you. And I think Jonah thinks maybe this is a bit of a deathbed confession. You know, this is kind of one of those, sheesh, we better actually do something because we don't want to be destroyed by God moments. So they pray their prayers and put on their sackcloth and ashes and repent. But Jonah thinks they're going to go back to normal. I know what these people are like. I know the wickedness and evil in their hearts. So he leaves the city and he goes to the east and he finds a really nice kind of rocky outcrop or hill or mountain or whatever it is. And he sits and he looks out over the city of Nineveh, hoping that in 40 days or less, they're going to mess up and God is going to judge them. Jonah wants the fireworks. He wants to watch Nineveh burn. That's really what's going on in his mind. So if you are new to church, that's not what all preachers are like. 
that is what's going on in Jonah. And this is meant to be embarrassing. This is meant to be an expose of what is going on in his heart and what is not right with him. And I think for all of us here today, there's this danger that we can become self-righteous and judgmental. It happens so easily in the church, you know. At first, we experience the grace and the love of God, and it changes our hearts, and we're amazed at this abounding love and patience of God. And then over time, we forget how much God has forgiven us and what he has done in our lives. And the self-righteousness and judgment starts to creep up and grow and grow and grow until we're in the kind of place that Jonah is in. And this is a warning for us. If we're looking at the city of Durban the way Jonah looked at Nineveh, there's a problem. If we're treating the people in our lives the way Jonah is treating people, there's a problem. If you're in that place, something needs to change. We can't be judgmental. We can't be like this, so self-righteous and wicked. Jonah 4, verse 6 to 9. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. So what's going on is Jonah is on this hillside. He's overlooking the city. He's waiting for judgment, the fireworks, God to do his business with Nineveh. And he's cross. He's got his arms folded. He's got this grumpy look on his face. He's feeling really self-righteous and really self-justified. And he's looking down on them. And he's basically like a sore loser. He hasn't gotten his way, so he's grumpy. And he looks down. And then this beautiful plant comes and pops up over his head. And Jonah is loving it. This is like air conditioning back in the day. He's loving this plant over his head and he's settling in. And then God sends a worm that nibbles away at the plant and it withers and dies. And God sends this hot wind that beats on his head and his face starts to look like mine because I was outside all day yesterday. And Jonah is feeling hot and he's feeling even more cross and the self-pity is growing up inside of him. And you can almost imagine Jonah in this moment. You know, he's had a lot going on over the last while. God's been doing a lot inside of his heart. And it's almost like when this plant grows up, you can imagine him going, Finally, something is going right in my life. This plant is exactly what I wanted. And then when the plant withers and dies, all of a sudden Jonah is going, I can't believe it. On top of everything else, God, why won't you give me a break? You can imagine exactly what's going on inside of him. And we don't really know all of the fullness of what goes on in his mind and his heart. But as we read through this book, we get an idea of where Jonah is at and the self-pity that's kind of rearing its head inside of him. Now, one of the things we've seen throughout this book is that almost for Jonah, the root of everything he is doing is the fact that he doesn't trust God. You know, Jonah has been asked by God to do something, and he thinks, if I do that, something's going to go wrong for me. Jonah doesn't trust God with his life and his decisions, and he thinks, if I surrender my life to the will of God, my life is going to be miserable, because God doesn't have my best intentions in mind. God doesn't want me to be happy. You know, so he thinks, I know better than God. I'm wiser than God. My plans are better than God's plans for my life. And he decides he's going to do his own thing. I think we're all like that, you know. I've been walking with God off and on, up and down for about 20 years now. Started going to church when I was a 12-year-old boy. So I've got 20 years, two decades of kind of, uh, I don't know, I can look in the mirror and see all that God has done. And I'm so grateful now in hindsight that God hasn't answered some of my prayers 
and that God hasn't let some of my plans be realized, and that God hasn't always given me the things I want at the time I want in the way I want, in hindsight. So I'm grateful for those 20 years, you know, knowing, okay, God really is a good father. He really is so, so good to us. He's so kind to us. I know that's true. But it's almost like now with 20 years of experience in the Christian faith that I'm like, God, I'm ready to take the wheel. You know, 20 years, I know what you're like. Let me guide my life now. And now with this experience and knowledge that I can trust God and that he is good and kind and he does have good things in mind for me and he does want the best for my life. I'm like, God, let me take the wheel and lead my own life. And when I pray prayers and make plans and have ideas that don't work out the way God wants them to, I think, God, what is going on with you? Like, don't you know? Don't you know this is what should happen? This is the best thing for me. This will make me the happiest. This is the right plan for my life. I'm so silly, you know? I don't trust God even though he's given me every reason to trust him, even in the crazy ups and downs of life. And that worm comes along into your life and mine, and it chumps my plant, and it withers and the sun is shining down on my head, and I'm cross, and I'm self-righteous, and I'm full of self-pity, and I just look at the situation, I'm angry with God, and Nineveh, and the worm, and the plant, and the weather, and everything, and I want to die. I don't know if you experience that too, but that's me. I'm not really uh, giving you the best picture of myself today, am I? But the whole idea of this book is that Jonah is like a mirror to us, and we look into the story, and we go, I am Jonah. I am Jonah. And I think I feel comfortable sharing these things with you today, because I know that you are too. We are Jonah, and this is our story. This is our book. This is what goes on inside of our lives. And the book ends with these two verses, Jonah 4, verse 10 and 11. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came up into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? See, God has compassion on Nineveh. And the word compassion is this interesting word. It means to suffer with. And I want you to think of that for a second. Like God suffers with Nineveh. God feels their pain. He experiences the effects of their sin on himself. To suffer with means that God actually takes the sin and the pain and the suffering of Nineveh onto himself. That's the kind of God that we've been singing about today and that we're speaking about today and that is revealed in the scriptures. And it's almost like at the end of this book, God is speaking to Jonah and he's saying, Jonah, if I take on the pain and the feelings and the emotion of this people unto myself, shouldn't you as my prophet do the same thing too? If I suffer with them, if I have compassion on them, shouldn't you have compassion too? You see, because Jonah doesn't weep over the city, but Jesus did. The amazing thing is you watch Jesus going into the city of Jerusalem at the end of his life. He knows he's got a week left to live. He knows he's going to the cross. He knows he's going to die. He goes into the city and he weeps for the city. Jonah leaves the city and he's self-righteous and he's angry with the people and he's cross. He's a bad prophet. But Jesus goes into the city and he weeps for it, knowing that these people, that these leaders, that this mob is going to put him on the cross and kill him and misunderstand him. See, Jesus is the prophet that Jonah should have been. That's what's going on in this book. And we see um, Jesus in the Bible probably weeps 20 times more than he laughs, which makes Jesus sound like a bit of a killjoy kind of character, but it's not true. We see in the scriptures that Jesus is filled with the joy that comes from the Holy Spirit. Jesus is a joyful person. Jesus is a happy guy. You would have enjoyed being around him. We see that with all of the people in the scriptures. They wanted to be with Jesus. But Jesus cries so much, not because he's this killjoy character, but because he connects so much with people. 
He feels our pain. He knows what's going on with us. He experiences us and he suffers with us. He has compassion. So Jesus is moved by what you go through and what I go through. See, our sadness makes him sad and our pain makes him feel pain. And I want you to know that God is not ambivalent to what is going on in our world, to the brokenness in our world and the sin and the injustice and the wrong that we see out there. God isn't ambivalent. It's not like God's looking down and he doesn't care. He is deeply connected. And more than that, Jesus is so connected to it that he went to the cross and not only felt the pain and suffering and sin and injustice of the world, but he took it onto himself. He died for it, that he could renew and save the world that we live in. See, Jesus is the missionary that Jonah should have been. And when Jonah goes out of the city to sit on this rocky outcrop and look over Nineveh and see its condemnation, Jesus goes out of the city, he's taken out of the city, and he's nailed to a cross and he dies for the salvation of the city. Jesus is a much greater missionary than Jonah was. And Tim Keller, when he looks at this book um, of Jonah, he finds this amazing parallel between Luke chapter 15 and between the book of Jonah, which if you've seen, you're amazingly insightful, but it's, it's really incredible. In Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son, we have two brothers pitted against each other. There's a younger brother and an older brother. And in Jonah chapter 1 and 2, it's almost like Jonah is like the younger brother. If you know the parable, the younger brother is the, the runaway. He runs away from home. He leaves his father. He takes his money and he goes and he spends it on wild living. He sins and does whatever he wants. He's kind of the immoral son. And we see that in Jonah 1 and 2. Jonah runs from God. He does his own thing. He sins. He's rebellious. He's the runaway. But in Jonah 3 and 4, we see that he's much more like the older brother in the Luke 15 parable. The one who does what his father asks him to do like Jonah does. He finally goes to Nineveh and he preaches his message. But in his heart, he's still far from the father. And in those moments, Jonah was still far from the father even as he preached that message. And we see Jonah and this older brother both going to the God figure, to the father, and saying, you shouldn't show grace to my younger brother. You shouldn't show grace to Nineveh. You should judge them. You should kick them out. You should destroy them. You should punish them. And in both of these stories, the father goes out to the younger son, to the older son, and he reaches out to bring them home. And the Luke 15 parable ends with us not knowing how the older brother will respond. The younger brother has come home to the father, but the older brother will not come home and celebrate that there has been salvation. Just like Jonah, he doesn't want to celebrate what God has done in Nineveh. And we're left not knowing in Luke 15, will this older brother respond to the father or not? And in Jonah, we're left with this cliffhanger question. What will Jonah do? What will he do? How will he respond to God's words? Because God basically says to him, you don't want me to have compassion on Nineveh, on these 120,000 people, Jonah. But how can I not? Should I not love this great city? And should you not love it too? And it's almost like at the end of this book, this last verse is this arrow that God is shooting at Jonah's heart, at his self-righteousness, wanting to pop it and pierce it. But it's almost like as we read that and as we end this book, that arrow comes out of the page and it strikes us. We realize that question is directed at us. Should we not love the great city of Durban? Should we not love this place we live in and the people in our lives who maybe we don't disagree with, the us and the them kind of situation? How are we going to respond to God's word? How are we going to respond to the people around us? How are we going to respond with some of the stuff going on in our own hearts? And as we finish this book, we are left with Jonah, who, in the words of Damien Lindica, seems like a bit of a loser. 
We think, really, this guy, you know, we've seen him run away from God. We've seen him mistreat the sailors in chapter one. In chapter two, he's kind of taking quite a while to turn back to God. Chapter three, he self-righteously preaches. In chapter four, he is full of self-pity and anger at God. End of book. But what's quite amazing about this book is most of what is going on here is between Jonah and God. Now, maybe we've got the king who speaks briefly in chapter 3 and some sailors in chapter 1. But for this book to have ever been written, it means that Jonah would have had to tell the story. Jonah had to share the story. And almost after the end of chapter 4, where God asked this question, is it possible maybe that his heart was pricked? He's been going through this process, but maybe finally he sees the self-righteousness in him. Maybe finally he experiences the grace of God that he's been preaching about before, and he's finally changed. Maybe it took a few more years. Maybe it took a few more trips to different cities and towns and people groups. But eventually Jonah started to open up about his story. And he started to share about the kind of man he was. And he shared about running away from God, and about judging the sailors, and about the terrible message he preached, and about wanting to die on that rocky outcrop looking out over the city, and how cross he got about that worm, and how cross he got about the plant. And the only kind of man who could share about what a fool they were like that is someone whose heart has been changed, you know? This man obviously had started to find a loving security in God's arms, where before he'd been finding in other things. And now he doesn't mind sharing the fool that he's been and the man that he was and all of his failures. And you can almost imagine him starting to share this message in homes and with friends, preaching to loud, uh, large crowds, maybe another crowd of 120,000 people. And he stands up and he says, can you believe the self-righteous, xenophobic, racist, judgmental, prejudiced man that I used to be? So it's not the same man standing in front of them anymore. It's a new man who's been changed by the grace of God. And he says to the people that he's speaking to, I thank God that he never gave up on me and that he always pursued me. And for each of us here today, it's exactly the same. No matter what situation you're in, no matter what you're wrestling with today, no matter what you face, we can thank God as a church that he never gives up on us and that he will always pursue us. Would you stand with me and we're going to pray together. If you don't mind closing your eyes, that's something we do here almost to respond and just kind of focus on God alone at this time. But I just thought for each of us in this room, is today a day where there's something you need to repent of? Today Is today a day where you need to stop running from something? Is today maybe a day where you realize that there's an area in your life that needs to change? Maybe that still small voice of God is speaking to you even though you don't want to admit it and you don't want to own it. Or today is there something you need to pour out of your heart before God? And I just ask you, Holy Spirit, just to come and be with us now, to come upon us, to speak to us, to highlight us. We don't want to be like Jonah in chapter 4. We want to be the changed Jonah who's able to share this story and write this book. So I ask you even now, Lord, to reveal your face to us, to reveal your grace to us, to change us. We probably couldn't change on our own if we gave it all the might that we've got. But I ask you, Holy Spirit, to help us to change. We ask you for your power now. And that as we go into this week, as we go into Christmas, as we go into the end of this year, that you would help us to be the kind of people that you've called us to be. And that we wouldn't be reluctant missionaries in the city of Durban or self-righteous missionaries or self-pitying people, but that we would be people changed by the grace of Jesus who really reflect and reveal you well. Help us to be the kind of people you want us to be, we ask, Lord. Amen.